If you have your Bibles, please open them to the first chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We are going to be continuing our thoughts from last week from this great passage of Paul's epistle, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And as we said to you last week, this is the thesis statement for Paul's epistle of Romans. This is the entire book of Romans distilled and condensed in two simple verses. And we, have been take, we are taking these two weeks to look at Romans 1, 16 and 17, that we may understand some basic fundamental truths regarding the gospel and its centrality to the Christian life. And so let's read together from Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I shared with you last week that my desire in these two weeks has been to call a spiritual time out of sorts. I wanted to gather our hearts around some basic fundamental truths regarding the gospel so that we might move together with greater unity as a church as we move into the next year. And last week we looked at the most fundamental truth regarding the gospel, and that is simply the definition of the word gospel. We saw that the, the word gospel means good news. That the gospel is the good news of what God has accomplished for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the joyful tidings that guilty sinners can be reconciled to God and forgiven of all their sins through what Christ has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Paul says in verse 16 that this gospel, this good news, is the power of God. That if we receive the good news, if we center our lives around the good news, if we drink of the good news, if we have the good news in our hearts, it will be the power of God in our hearts to transform us and to change us both for time and for eternity. Michael Horton in his book, The Gospel-Centered Life, made this observation. He said, it is interesting that the biblical writers chose the word gospel to describe the work of Christ. The heart of most religions is good advice, good techniques, good programs, good ideas, good support systems. All of these things drive us deeper into ourselves. But the heart of Christianity is good news. The gospel comes to us not as a task to fulfill. It is not a mission for us to accomplish. It is not a game plan for us to follow. But it is a report that someone else has already fulfilled, accomplished, followed, and achieved everything for us. Good advice may help us in daily direction, but the good news concerning Jesus Christ saves us from sins, guilt, and tyranny, and the fear of death. It is good news because it does not depend on us. It is about God and His faithfulness of His own purposes and promises. I believe that in each one of our hearts there is a tendency to turn the good news into good advice. I believe that in our hearts there is a desire to make our lives revolve around what we do for God rather than revolving around what God has done for us in Christ. Each one of our hearts has a tendency to depart from the good news, and that's why we as Christians need to hear the gospel. We need the gospel proclaimed to us that we might receive it and experience its power afresh. Horton continues that the gospel is so odd even to us Christians that we have to get it again and again. The gospel is for Christians too. We need to be evangelized every week. It is only by, not by following Christ's example, but by actually being inserted into Christ, clothed with Christ, united to Christ, as the Spirit creates faith through the gospel that we are not only justified, but we are sanctified as well. 
And what he's simply saying there is that we as Christians, we need the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans so that Christians would understand the gospel. And so last week we ended our time by calling us as a church to experience afresh the power of gospel indicatives in our lives. To look at the indicatives of scripture, what God has accomplished for us in Christ, to drink them in and to allow the Holy Spirit to show us the beauty of what Christ has done. This morning I want to turn our attention to the great indicative that is central to the gospel. I want us to look at what Paul would say is the central indicative in the gospel that if we understand this truth, it will be the power of God in our lives. And what I'm speaking of here is the great indicative of justification. It is the indicative described in Romans 1:17, where Paul says, For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I looked at this verse this week and realized that I cannot explain the significance of this verse without some help from church history. I realized that in order for us to understand how powerful this verse is, we need some help from how it has worked in church history to impact lives and to change the course of the Christian church. And so I want to couch our understanding of Romans 17 in the story of Martin Luther. And the story goes like this. Luther was a monk who lived in the 16th century, and he wasn't always a monk. In fact, at one time, he was an aspiring law student. That was his father's great ambition for his life. But after a near-death experience in which Luther was almost struck by lightning, he cried out, Help St. Anne, I shall become a monk. He was so terrified by the greatness of God. And so there in the monastery, Luther tried through religious works and extreme exertions to make himself acceptable to God through his works. He hoped through his monastery experience to attain to a standard of righteousness that would appease God and cause God to accept him. And these efforts to attain to a standard of righteousness were agonizing. Luther prayed, he fasted, he resolved to thoroughly confess his sin. In fact, at times he confessed sin up to six hours at a time. He confessed so many sins that his superior got mad at him and said, don't come back until you have some real sins to confess. Stop bringing me all these trivial sins. And at times Luther would confess his sins, finish, leave, and come right back because he thought of some sins that he would commit in the future that he wanted to confess. Luther said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And yet his efforts at working his way into God's favor did not bring the peace that he had hoped for. His stay in the monastery was a time of deep spiritual despair because as hard as he tried, Luther could find no assurance of God's favor. As many works as he did for God, his conscience was still racked with guilt and he sensed that God's righteous standard was utterly unattainable. And no matter how hard he tried, he could not attain to it. One biography, biographer writes that Luther probed every resource for assuaging the anguish of a spirit alienated for God. He tried the way of good works and discovered that he could never do enough to save himself. The most frightful insecurities beset him. Panic invaded his spirit. His conscience became so disquieted as to start and tremble at the stirring of a wind-blown leaf. The horror of nightmare gripped his soul. Luther repeatedly testified that these torments were far worse 
than any physical ailment he had ever endured. And at the heart of it was Luther's sense of the holiness of God. To Luther, God was holy, majestic, inaccessible, glorious. He said, do you not know that God dwells in light inaccessible? We weak and ignorant creatures want to probe and understand the incomprehensible majesty of the unfathomable light of the wonder of God. We approach, we prepare ourselves to approach what wonder then that his majesty overpowers us and shatters us. And so he could find no peace and his superior, fearing for his mental health, tried to divert his energies and attention to something more productive. So he set him on a course to study and teach the scripture. And Luther, in obedience to this directive, began to study the book of Romans. He got to Romans 1:17. And he says this of his experience. He writes, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle of the, to the Romans. But up till then, it was a single word in chapter 1, verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that has stood in my way. For I hated the word, the righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand as the punitive righteousness by which God punishes sinners. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. And I did not love Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, I was angry with God. I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. I desired most ardently to know what Paul wanted to say. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous, shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, it is the righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Luther says here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I before hated the word the righteousness of God. What Luther experienced that day as he beat repeatedly upon Romans 1.17 was that this phrase, the righteousness of God, was not the terrible news that God in his righteousness punishes guilty sinners in hell. But what he discovered that day was that the righteousness of God in this context was the righteousness that a holy God gives by grace to guilty sinners as a gift. And that it is received not by doing works in order to satisfy a holy God, but by simply receiving through faith the gift of the gospel that God has to offer.
Luther discovered the heart of the gospel in this verse. And the heart of the gospel is this. God graciously justifies guilty sinners as a gift of his grace. And he says, when I discovered this, it was as if the doors opened to paradise and I was altogether born again. The great indicative of the gospel contained in Romans 1.17 is that God justifies guilty sinners and that if we have believed and placed our faith in Christ, then God has justified us by his grace. He has declared us to be righteous on the basis of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we don't have to be like Luther and seek to placate God or satisfy God through our prayers, through our service, through our ministry, through our efforts, but we can simply receive the righteousness that God gives to us on the basis of what Christ has done. Romans 3.21 puts it this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Through this verse, Luther discovered the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. The truth that God declares us to be righteous by his grace alone, received through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, to the glory of God alone, and his discovery of this great doctrine changed his life and ushered in the Protestant Reformation. And from here on out, Luther would proclaim the doctrine of justification and he would proclaim that this doctrine is central to all that the church teaches and believes. He called the doctrine of justification the article upon which the church stands or falls. He said that the doctrine of justification is the head. It is the cornerstone. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. Without the doctrine of justification, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. If you have an organization that calls itself a church that does not hold to, proclaim, and believe the doctrine of justification, it is not a church, Luther says. He says, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. It must be learned diligently. It alone can support us in the face of countless offenses. It alone can console us in our temptations and persecutions. If the doctrine of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It must be learned diligently. It must be constantly inculcated and impressed upon the the church's heart, it cannot be taught too much. We must take the doctrine of justification and we must beat it into our heads continually. And if you read the book of Romans, you'll see that Paul would agree. In Paul's mind, the doctrine of justification is central to the gospel. You can't understand the gospel without the doctrine of justification. It is the first truth that he mentions in verse 17 after he says the gospel is the power of God. He spends 
eight chapters describing and explaining the doctrine of justification. Romans 1 to 3 describe our need for justification. Chapter 4 describes Abraham's justification. Chapter 5 describes the result of justification. Chapter 6 and 7 describes sanctification in light of justification. Chapter 8 is all about glorification, which is tied to the Christian's justification. He spends so much time explaining the doctrine of justification because without this truth there is no gospel and if you don't understand justification you don't understand the gospel because this truth is central to the church to the scriptures to church history and to all that we believe. And I would just simply ask you this this morning. If the doctrine of justification is central to the scriptures, if it is central to church history, if it is central to the gospel, if it is central to the gospel of Romans, then is the doctrine of justification central to our hearts? How often do we think upon Meditate upon, ponder the great glorious truths of justification in our day-to-day lives. How often is this the truth that we rally behind, that we wake up and preach to ourselves first thing in the morning, that we use to explain the gospel to our children, that we fight our spiritual battles with, How often is this truth central to our hearts? And what I want to encourage us with as we look at the truths of Romans 1.17 is that this is the heart of God. That as we as his beloved children would come back to this truth, that we would just keep feeding ourselves on this truth, that we would just keep rejoicing in it, that we would just keep meditating on it, that we would just keep exulting in what God has done for us in justifying us as a gift by his grace. And the more we do this as a church and the more we do this as Christians, the more we will experience the power of God in our lives. And so what I want to do in our remaining time is I want to do two things. First, I just want to explain the doctrine of justification. Many of you already know the doctrine. You've heard it. But as Luther said, we need to beat it into our heads continually. It cannot be taught too much. I just want to explain the doctrine. And then secondly, I want to apply it to our hearts. So first of all, let's explain what is justification. And in your bulletin, there is a definition that I want us to look at together and I want us to unpack for our time together. This is borrowing from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. And the definition goes like this. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which God decides forever to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Let's read that one more time. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which God decides forever to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. Now, two features of this definition that I want to camp on and I want to unpack for you so that there is no misunderstanding as to what this doctrine teaches. First of all, justification is instantaneous. It is instantaneous. In other words, justification is a one-time pronouncement in which God declares the guilty sinner to be righteous at a moment in time. Justification occurs at the moment of conversion, at the moment in which the believer places his faith and trust in the cross of Jesus Christ. God, so to speak, pounds the gavel 
and declares the Christian to be not guilty and at the same time credits the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to his account. It is instantaneous. Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4.5, to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4.23, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Romans 5.1, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is the one-time event in which the believer, at a moment in time, receives full pardon, full forgiveness, full remission of all the sins that he ever will or ever has committed, and at the same time receives the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is a pronouncement. Brothers and sisters, you will never be more justified than you were at the moment of your conversion. You will never be more counted righteous through anything that you do as a Christian than what you received at the moment of your conversion. You will never receive more justifying grace than you did at the moment of your conversion. Nothing that we do can will ever add to it or supplement it. Nothing we ever do can take away from it. It is instantaneous. It is one time. It is the pronouncement of God. And this is why justification and sanctification, the two stages of our salvation, must always be held together but always at the same time be distinguished. Because as we know, sanctification is a process. It is not instantaneous. It is the day-by-day working of the Holy Spirit in which he progressively conforms us to the image of Christ. But the good news is this. Justification is not a process. It is a pronouncement. I just praise God. I just, this week I was just thanking God so much that justification is not a process. This was the truth that rocked Martin with this world. Because the Roman Catholic Church taught that justification was a process. The Roman Catholic Church taught justification, and even used the words faith, the justification by faith, but they taught that justification was a process in which justifying grace is not imputed to the sinner's account, but is infused into the sinner's soul. Once the sinner receives justifying grace into his soul, the sinner must then cooperate with this grace until he becomes truly righteous. If the sinner in this process of becoming truly righteous commits what the church called a mortal sin, a sin that was big enough or heinous enough to kill the justifying grace in his soul, then the sinner would lose his salvation, would lose his justification, and if he died in that state, he would go to hell. If the sinner had lost his justifying grace by committing a mortal sin, he must go back to the church and be re-justified. And the way to become re-justified is through the sacrament of penance in which the sinner performed works of quote-unquote satisfaction such as prayer and almsgiving and confession of sin. And there, through the work of penance, he could be re-justified. And still there was no assurance 
of eternal life. Because if justification is a process in which the sinner is becoming truly righteous, then what if you die and you have not yet attained to that state of righteousness? You still have impurities in your soul, and there the Catholic Church taught that if you died in the state of having received justification, but still having a soul in need of purification, you would not go to heaven, you would not go to hell, you would go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you would remain until the impurities of your soul had been removed from your heart, allowing you now to enter into heaven. Do you see why to Luther, this news, that justification is a pronouncement, it is instantaneous, it is a one-time event, in which God's justifying grace is poured out completely and totally upon the sinner at the moment he places his faith in Christ. Do you see why that was a truth that rocked his world? Do you see why that to him was such good news? Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, that if justification is a process, then we have no good news. If there is a way for me to lose the justifying grace that is in my soul, I will surely find a way to lose it. I know my heart and I know my sins. If my justification can be lost, believe me, I will find a way but the truth that at the moment of my conversion, God took all the sins that I have ever committed, that I ever will commit, and he once and for all imputed them to the cross with Jesus Christ and nailed them to the cross with him. And at the moment of my conversion, God took the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and at one time dispensed it all to my account. That is good news. Because of this, Luther said, we can exult, we can rejoice, we have peace with God, and we are assured of his love for us because justification is instantaneous. The second feature I want you to look at this in this definition is not only is justification instantaneous, but I want to highlight this truth that justification is a double blessing. It is a double blessing. Blessing, and I want to press you on this because I want you to understand this. This is critical to our understanding of the gospel. Look at the definition one more time. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which God decides forever to think of our sins as forgiven. And I think for most of us, that's where our understanding of justification ends. If we were to ask most of the five-year-olds in our children's ministry, what is salvation? What is the gospel? This is how far they would take it most likely. Salvation means that Jesus died for my sins and that my sins are forgiven because of Christ. And this is the first great indicative of what God has done for us in Christ. The gospel is that I have committed a great mass of sins in my life. The gospel is that I have not only external sins, I have internal sins. I have not only sins of action, I have sins of attitude. I have not only sins of omission, I have sins of commission. I not only have done the things I shouldn't have done, I have not done the things I should have done. The gospel says that my sin is not only things that I do, but it is the internal corruption of my heart that there is enough sin in my godliest prayer or in my godliest act of service to damn the entire world. 
The gospel is that I have broken all of God's law. I have lied, I have lusted, I have been angry, I have coveted, I have dishonored my father and mother. I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have not loved my neighbor as much as I love myself. And so I have this mountain of sins, this great mass of sins in which if I had to pay for them all, I would spend an eternity in hell. And the gospel is that all of my sins been nailed to the cross with Christ and God has forgiven me not just some of my sins but all my sins as far as the east is from the west so far as he removed them from me he has plunged them into the depths of the sea he remembers them no more. And this first aspect, this first blessing of justification is, is amazing. It is, ast- is earth-shattering. It is universe-changing that a holy God would forgive sin all because of what Christ has done. But what I want to point out this morning is that's just one side of justification. Justification is a double blessing. It is a double imputation. Look at the definition. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which God decides forever to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's Righteousness as belonging to us. Two things happened at the moment of our conversion. Our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ. They were credited to Jesus at the cross. God treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed all of our sins, although we know that Jesus was perfect and righteous and holy. But there was a double imputation. The second imputation is this. God took the perfect, spotless record of righteousness, which was earned by Jesus Christ through his perfect life. And he credited it. He deposited it to our account the moment we believed, although we are sinful and although we are not righteous, God sees us clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you go through your Christian life, Do you believe, brothers and sisters, do you really believe that when God looks at you, he sees someone who has always kept his law? Do you believe, do you really believe when you, when you look to the Father, do you, do you see that the Father views you as someone who always has done what is pleasing to him? Do you believe that God looks at you and sees someone who has never failed to keep his commandments, never failed to keep his holy standards, never failed to keep his righteousness, that God sees in you a person who has lived a life of perfect humility, a perfect sacrifice, a perfect obedience, a perfect meekness, a perfect love, And if that's not your day-to-day experience as a Christian, then, brothers and sisters, I would humbly say that, that, that we're not, we don't believe the good news. We don't believe the doctrine of justification. Because in justification, there is a double blessing. 
It is my sins imputed to Christ at the cross. It is Christ's righteousness imputed to me. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any one of them, even though I am still inclined to all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So R.C. Sproul gives this illustration to help us understand the, the double nature of this blessing. Say you have a guy who owns owes a, a trillion dollars to the credit card company. He owes this vast unpayable debt that he cannot pay. And a very rich man, a generous benefactor comes along and out of sheer grace and sheer mercy for this man's plight says, I will pay your debt in full. I will pay your trillion dollars. You will bear this sin no more. Bear this debt no more. I, on your behalf, will pay it for you out of grace. And so he does, and the man's credit card debt is wiped clean. It is zeroed out. He's free from his debt. He bears it no more. And Sproul asks, what do you call a man? who has received such a gracious transaction. He says, you call him bankrupt. He's bankrupt. Because although his trillion dollar debt has been paid, he doesn't have any money. He's poor. He doesn't have a cent to his account. He doesn't owe anything to anyone, but he doesn't have anything either. And Sproul says that this is the glory of the double nature, the double blessing that God has accomplished for us in our justification, is that justification is not only that God takes our debt of sin that we cannot pay and wipes it clean, but God takes, as it were, the trillion dollar plus infinity positive righteousness of Jesus Christ and he credits it to our spiritual bank account so that not only are we not debtors, but we are rich. And in our account is the positive balance of righteousness that Christ has earned on our behalf. Theologians call this the great exchange. It's, it's the greatest news this world's ever heard. You look at how beautiful the gospel is. I mean, all we have to do is believe. You don't earn it. You just receive it. It's the gift of God to you. I'll take your sins and I'll give you Christ's righteousness and all you have to do is receive it by faith. Who on earth? You would have to be a total fool. reject this it is good news and yet it is so foreign to our hearts we want to add to what Christ has done we want to supplement what he has accomplished for us that our greatest struggle is we have we have a hard time just keeping our hands off this doctrine and just letting it be, and just receiving it by faith. The doctrine of justification teaches that my sin was imputed to Christ at the cross, even though he was not a sinner, and his righteousness is imputed to me, even though I am not righteous. And the beautiful truth is this, and here's what I want to press you. Not only has God credit to you as a believer 
If you have trusted in Christ, God has not only credited to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, but God has determined that he will treat you in accordance with your justified status, that he will never treat you or look upon you or have any attitude towards you except that which is perfectly consistent with what he has done for you in justification. That he not only has declared it, but the continuing effects of what God has declared is that he will now treat us in accordance to what he has done for us. And this is where I I just believe that as believers we struggle. There's just unbelief in our hearts. We don't don't believe this. We believe intellectually that, that God has declared me righteous in Christ, but then when we look at our lives, we're saying, God, why are you mad at me? God, why are you disappointed in me? Or God, I've blown it. I've I've found a way to get out of your favor. And God says, no, it's done. And our lives are are racked with, with insecurity and with fear that we will lose God's favor if we fail him. That we have to keep continuing our efforts to please him in order to keep his good favor toward us. And God says, no, it's done. It's, it's completed in your justification. And, and we, we struggle with anxiety in our hearts. We struggle with a lack of peace in our hearts. We fall into times of despair and discouragement. We feel like God is not for us. And then we make up for that times with, with frantic bursts of spiritual activity. And God says it's done. God would say to us, child of God, why are you so frantic? Child of God, why are you so anxious? Why are you so fearful of losing my love when I've dispensed all my justifying grace upon you at the moment you were saved? And I will always treat you as if you have been credited with Christ's righteousness. And because I accept you on the basis of Christ, you will always experience my favor toward you. I looked at this truth this week and I just thought, man, if I really believe this, if I really believe this, how different would my heart be? How different would my life be? How, 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 how much I would love God, how much I would just enjoy God. Not because I have to, but because because. How awesome is the work that he did for me? And yet, we we move from the glorious truth of justification. I um, I was reading the story of Eric Liddell, who was, as you know, a Christian runner, and he he was just a great runner. He said, he said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. And my first sinful response to that was, that's great for him. Gosh, I wish I could feel the pleasure. I don't think I've ever felt the pleasure of God. I've never been so good at anything that I felt the pleasure of God. And as I looked at this truth, I realized that this was because of my unbelief. If I believed the doctrine of justification, I would feel the pleasure of God in everything I did. I would wake up in the morning and feel the pleasure of God. Do you believe, do you really believe that because of the finished work of Christ, that God the Father is rejoicing over you right now? Do you believe, child of God, do you really believe that because of what God has done for you, that God the Father delights over you right now? Or in your heart is this restlessness that you're saying even now, Dan, okay, I get it. I'll do better this week. I'll be more faithful in my quiet times. I'll be nicer to my wife. I'll be more faithful at care group. I'll do a better job and then God will really, or 
Are you willing to repent of your strivings to earn God's favor, your efforts to supplement what Christ has done, and just receive? Right now, as you're sitting in your seat, just receive the fact that God delights over you this morning because of Christ, and nothing you will do will ever add to what has already been done for you. Are you, are you willing to believe that? We must not be ashamed to believe that the doctrine of justification belongs to us. It is our truth. And when we believe in this truth, some of you might be saying, I'm afraid to believe in this. You know, I've talked to Christians and Mina's talked to Christians, but we'll, we'll, share, we'll share with Christians the gospel. And we'll share with Christians, do you realize that, that the work is finished, it's done, it's complete, you can't add to it? Nothing you do is ever going to get to God to love you more. Nothing you do is going to get God to love you less. He loves you because of Christ. All you got to do is believe that. Just hold to that. And we'll get these skeptical looks on people's faces. And they'll kind of say, no. That can't be true. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be something at the end. If you do this, then you can experience the blessings of justification. We're saying, no, all you got to do is believe. All you got to do is trust what Christ has done. And there's kind of this, this hesitancy to really believe the sheer grace of God. And I think one of the hesitancy, one of the fears is that if I really believe that, if I really live like this, if I really believe that I can't add to it, then I'm going to become undisciplined. I'm going to not be a diligent Christian. I'm not going to want to serve. Because if God's grace is really that free, why don't I just sin? in order that his grace might abound to me. And when we hear people say that in response to sharing with them the gospel, we're encouraged. Because what that means is we've explained the doctrine of justification right. If your response to justification is what? Why don't I just go sin in order that grace might increase in, if grace is really that big? That was exactly the question Paul had to answer after he explained justification. Because if you explain it right, that is the natural question. The truth is, the more we drink of the doctrine of justification into our hearts, the more we will be changed into Christ's likeness. And the truth is that you cannot grow Christian in your sanctification until you have come to grips with your justification. If you are striving to be a better Christian, if you're working hard to be a better servant, if you're trying to be a better father, a better husband, if you're trying to be a better friend, if you're trying to be a better character leader, if you're trying to do all these things and you have not settled in your heart that God has justified you on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, you will be like Martin Luther. There will be no end to this standard of righteousness. You will be going on and on with peace um, elusive in your heart. Because no matter how much you try, no matter how much you do, you will never be able to attain to God's standard. You need to just come back to justification. You need to come returning to this truth. You need to keep eating of it, drinking of it, rejoicing in it, remembering it. And I'll leave you with this final thought. Maybe you're having a hard time relating to a guy like Martin Luther. And maybe this morning you're saying, you know, I know Martin Luther needed the doctrine of justification because he was kind of a messed up guy. And the guy was just kind of crazy, right? I mean, who confesses sin for six hours? I mean, who fasts for three days? I mean, who, who does this? I mean, he needed to hear the grace of God, but, you know, I'm an ordinary guy. I mean, I watch ESPN. I go to Starbucks. I'm an ordinary gal. I have kids at home. I, you know, I, I just, I'm just a soccer mom. I, I take kids to soccer. I'm just an ordinary person. Why do I need the doctrine of justification? You need the doctrine of justification because as Christians, without the doctrine of justification, we are all prone 
to experience this pendulum. And if you, you, you've been a Christian for a while, you know what I'm talking about. It is the pendulum of going from self-righteousness to self-condemnation and back to self-righteousness again. You do something good and you become self-righteous about it. You do something bad and you, you become despairing about it. You have a bad day spiritually. Your room's not made. Your bills aren't paid. Your kids are going crazy all, all over the place. You, you forgot to bring snacks to care group. And everyone's mad at you because that's, you know, that's the mortal sin at, at Cornerstone Bible Church is don't bring snacks to care. You could do anything, everything else bad, but don't bring snacks. It's the unforgivable sin. So everyone's mad at you. You have shame, condemnation, and your internal monologue is you're running through self-condemnation. Your internal monologue is I stink. I'll never get this Christian thing live. I never can do everything right. There's so many things to do in the Christian life. I can never have my ducks in a row. And you fall into self-condemnation and then you do one thing right. You serve a person or you pray for a person or someone, you do something in ministry and someone says, oh, I was so blessed with what you do. And your heart gets puffed up and you move from self-condemnation to self-righteousness. You say, oh, if only every Christian could be like me. If only every Christian could be organized like me, diligent like me, have their spiritual disciplines like me. If only every Christian could have their act together like me, then we would be an awesome church. And then you go right back because you fail again and you fall into self-condemnation and you wallow in your guilt and you just move back and forth and back and forth on this pendulum every day of your lives. And I've been there and I've done it and I've moved from this pendulum in one hour of my life, I've swung from place to place, just wallowing in my guilt. How come I can't get anything right in the Christian life? I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to become a godly man. I'm never going to become a Christian. And then I get an email. Someone encourages me and says, oh, Pastor Dan, I was really blessed by your message or something. And then I'm like, oh, man, I'm such a, oh, God, God really uses me. I'm such a good Christian. I wish everyone could be as as disciplined, diligent as me. And then I I get mad at my kids in five minutes. I'm like, oh, man, I'm never, back and forth, back and forth. And what keeps us centered what keeps us centered as Christians and releasing us from condemnation on one hand and self-righteousness on the other and just keeps us walking in the joy that is in Jesus Christ is this doctrine of justification. It's just centering our lives upon justification that I am accepted on the basis of Christ. Because I'm accepted on the basis of Christ, on my worst days, I have no reason to despair. And because I'm accepted on the basis of Christ, on my best days, I have no reason to boast. But I have every reason, every day of my life to rejoice and just receive what God has done. Let me exhort you with just the strongest language possible. Your response right now is you want to walk out of this room and you want to do something. Your response right now, I know, because this is my heart. You want to walk out of this church. You want to do something. You're saying, Dan, okay, I get the doctrine. Now give me something to do. Tell me to study or tell me to pray or tell me to serve. And I'm just telling you right now, what you need to do is what I need to do is we need to keep our hands off what Christ has done. Don't touch it. Keep your legalistic hands off the doctrine of justification and just Receive it. Receive it this morning by grace through faith. And it will be the power to change your life. So I leave you with this. John Bunyan, his testimony in his work, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he said this, One day as I was passing in the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. It was the sentence, Thy righteousness is in heaven. Methought with all I saw, with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ, at God's right hand, there I say, as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me that he wants my righteousness, because my righteousness was before God in Christ. I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better. It was not my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was in Jesus Christ. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs. I was loose from my afflictions and irons. My temptations fled away. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Oh, methought Christ, Christ, there was nothing but Christ that was before my eyes. His blood, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation. Oh, that I saw that my gold, my righteousness was in Jesus Christ. 
Christ, my Savior, brothers and sisters, that is where our righteousness is as well. And so let us this morning believe and receive and rejoice and remember the great doctrine of justification. Let's close in prayer together and give God praise. Our Father, what can we say to what you have done? Oh God, we repent of our legalism. We repent of our pride. We repent of our attempts to try to to supplement what Christ has already accomplished. In each of our hearts, there is that desire. There is a desire to try to earn your favor. There is a desire in each one of our hearts this morning to try to merit your good grace toward us so that we can look back and point back and say that we did it to boast in our own accomplishment in each of our hearts, Father. We confess that there is a desire to have our life center around what we have done and what we are doing rather than what Christ has done on our behalf. And so, Father, we repent. We repent this morning. And we desire to simply, by faith, receive your good pleasure toward us in Christ. Oh, how we praise you that our righteousness is in Jesus Christ and it is given to us as a gift by your grace alone. We give to you all the glory and all the praise because you have done it all. And we pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.